Heavenly Father, as we continue to think about the topic of sin, we pray once again that you would help us to see sin as an unattractive uh, thing, that it would be uh, that it would be odious in our sight. We pray even more that we would see the glories of Christ who died in order to give us freedom from sin and forgiveness of our sins, uh, that we would see uh, what a great salvation it is that he's brought to us whenever we consider what our sin is, how horrible it is, and, and what its consequences lead towards. So be with us as we study now, for it's in the name of Christ we ask and pray. Amen. So today, uh, you can put it 8.2, consequences of sin. Uh, we took some time to define sin yesterday, uh, trans, uh, talked about some synonyms, transgression, trespass, iniquity, wickedness, evil. Uh, sin is a failure to perform God's commands. It is rebellion against God. The two greatest commands are the command to love God with every part of who we are and to love our neighbor as ourself. And any time that we sin, we not only violate whatever commandment it is, the that we violate whenever we sin, but we also violate those. And so uh, we went through the Ten Commandments yesterday. Uh, we talked about uh, what each of those entails. Uh, and that's something that we'll come back to later in the semester. I made maybe a couple of cryptic statements about the Sabbath, about um, the command not to murder, the command not to lie. Um, we'll have to talk about those in more detail a little bit later on, but we don't have time to do that at this present moment. Today, we're transitioning from talking about what sin is to what it leads to. Uh, yesterday, I mentioned that sin in, in and of itself is a bad thing, and that scripture emphasizes that we need to be saved from sin, not only from the consequences of sin, but from sin itself. But today, we are doing something that is also helpful, and we're transitioning to ask the question, uh, what does sin do? What does it lead towards uh, most famous verse along these lines would be Romans 6.23. It's one that you've probably heard in VBSs growing up. Probably had to memorize for candy at some point. Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is what? Death. Death. The first thing, the first consequence of sin is death. Now, we have to uh, think about this a little bit more carefully. In Genesis chapter 2, Adam was given a commandment. You can eat any of the trees in the garden except for one, the, knowledge, uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat that fruit. And on the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. If you sin and break this command, Adam, you will surely die. Now, Genesis chapter 3, Adam eats the fruit, and does Adam physically drop dead that instant? No. There's two ways that we can kind of approach this whenever we talk about sin leading to death. The first one is the scriptures talk about death in a spiritual sense, spiritual death. And what this means is that you are far away from God. You are not in right relationship with him. Ephesians chapter 2 tells us that all of us were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no spiritual life. We weren't right with God. We were sinning instead, rebelling against him. And spiritually, there was no life, no light in us. We were spiritually dead. The second that Adam and Eve sinned, they became spiritually dead. 
They were separated from God's presence. They were alienated from his loving kindness. The good relationship they had with him was broken. So even though they don't physically drop dead, they are spiritually dead in that sense. But on top of that as well, sin also led to physical death. Anybody know how long the scriptures say Adam lived? Not, yeah, 930 years. All right, nice long life. Any of you guys going to make it to 930? Probably not. Um, eventually, Adam's body did wear down. Eventually, Adam's body did die. He physically died. He was buried. And then his body decomposed and decayed. That would not have happened had sin not entered the world, according to Scripture. Immediately, Adam and Eve experienced spiritual death and separation from God. But eventually, one of the effects and consequences of sin is that it kills. It leads to death being present in the world. On top of that as well, when Adam sinned in Genesis 3, we get a nice long chunk of that chapter dedicated to talking about how it not only brought death into the world, but it also brought a number of curses. If we look at Genesis chapter 3, God places curses first on the serpent, and then he places a curse on the woman. He says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, and he shall rule over you. What are the curses of sin mentioned there? Well, first of all, whenever Eve is fruitful and multiplies, it's not going to be pleasant. There is an introduction of pain. Pain is a consequence of sin. On top of that as well, Adam and Eve, uh, in their innocence, in their purity, before sin entered the world, would have had a good relationship with each other, maritally. Now there will be strife. Sometimes Eve's desires will be contrary to Adam's desires. Any of you guys had boyfriend-girlfriend relationships yet? Some of you have, some of you haven't. Any Ever been a point with some of you guys where the desire of the boyfriend was contrary to the desire of the girlfriend? She wants to go shop at the mall and you want to go watch a DC movie and uh, desi- desires go like that. Or some of you boys haven't figured out uh, yet that whenever you're trying to figure out where you should go eat let her decide and uh you know she uh she wants to go to uh to cheddars and you want to go to fazoli's and there's a there's conflict here one of the things that's going to happen between adam and eve in their marriage but then broader than that just in relationships in general is that there is going to be contrary desires there is going to be strife and this is going to lead Two, in the final line of verse 16, uh, Adam being domineering as well, ruling over the wife. So this leads to broken relationships, hard marriages. Uh, Maybe there's even an element of abuse that's mixed in with verse 16 where Adam is trying to be domineering now. And the curses on Adam are also serious. Adam has been given the command to work the ground, to produce food, to keep it, to grow things. And now he's going to sweat. He's going to prick his fingers on thorns and bleed. Work existed before the fall, but now it's going to be frustrating. Any of you guys feel that? Work is a good thing. 
but do you ever get to the point where your work feels frustrating and tedious? Even, even something like a sport can get that way, right? Any days that you just really don't want to go to practice, right? And it's hot, and it's sweaty, and it's smelly, and it's gross. Work becomes frustrating. Work becomes hard. So, consequences of sin, immediate spiritual death, also leads to physical death. Pain, broken relationships, marital strife, frustrating work. Notice in this as well that the effects of sin don't just touch human beings. There's a curse that is put on the land, on the ground that Adam is working. The entire world has been negatively affected by sin. The the curse extends beyond human beings to touch everything. This is picked up on by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, Paul is talking about how we live in a fallen world. And he says, the creation is waiting. This is Romans 8, 19 and following. He says, the creation is waiting with with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to frustration, but not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from the bondage of corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Creation didn't sin. Adam sinned. But Adam's sin has touched everything. All of creation now groans under a curse because of the sins of human beings. You ever pause to think that nothing else in creation ever sinned willingly? You have a question? Romans eight nineteen and following. You ever paused and thought about that? Nothing in creation willingly sinned. Except for what? Us. Yeah, nothing else really had the capacity to. But there is language used throughout the Old Testament of God telling the stars where to go. And guess what they do? They go. God tells the rain to fall. And guess what it does? It falls. God tells human beings, don't murder. (laughs) Look at where we're at. Here's my plug with Francis Vazizi real quick, because, you know, master's thesis. Francis has a poem called The Canticle of the Sun, uh, The Song of the Sun, where he goes through in the first several verses of the song, and he calls on all of creation to praise God. The sun, the moon, the stars, fire, wind, water, the creatures, all of them are are praising God, and they're all joining together in song to praise God. You guys know Psalm 19. Uh, the creation, what does it say in Psalm 19.1? The heavens declare the the glory of God and and all of creation is involved in this. If 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 you look at creation, it's screaming of the glory of the creator that designed it. And Francis points out, all of these things in creation have a right to praise God. They were made by him and they have a right to to sing his praises, to worship him, except us. We, we don't have the right to, to praise God like that. We have sinned. We have broken relationship with the Lord. And so whereas all of creation is singing God's glory and has a right to do that, we don't do it, and, and we have no right to. We've, we've rebelled against him. We've fallen out of relationship with him. No human lips are worthy to declare his praises, Francis says. But we're invited into the song by grace. 
we're able to join in that song and give glory to God because Jesus lived and died and was resurrected for us and by his grace we're saved and we're once again invited into right relationship with God to glory, glorify him and praise him. But the curse of sin, sin that we committed, touches everything in creation. Nothing in creation sinned except for us. So it leads to spiritual death immediately, physical death later on. It leads to the curses that we find in the world of pain and tears and sorrow and sadness and all of these other things uh, are results and consequences of sin. Now, does that mean necessarily that being sad is a sin? No. But if there was no sin, would there be a reason to be sad? Also no. Another thing that sin leads to is a it's kind of a Bible vocabulary word that's often a little bit misunderstood. Sin leads to hardening. The idea is the more that you walk in sinful ways, the more your heart is hardened to that which is good. Paul explains this in Romans chapter 1 in quite a bit of detail. In Romans 1, starting in verse 18 and following, Paul says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. So, There's truth about God that the creation communicates that anybody could understand. Paul explains what those are. He says, you can look at creation and you can see his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, because they've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. Creation tells us that there is a God and that he's powerful. Creation shows us that. So people are without excuse for although they knew god they did not honor him as god or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened claiming to be wise they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal god for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things so every human being has access to some knowledge of god through the creation But according to Paul, human beings suppress that knowledge. It's not convenient that there's a God out there who holds us accountable for the things that we do. We want to live life our own way. So we suppress the truth of God. And then in verse 24 of Romans 1, it says, Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. What it means that God hardens people is, to use Paul's language here, is that he gives them up. He gives them over to their sinful desires. These people don't want to worship God. They would rather be their own rulers, their own kings, and live life their own way, it's not good for them, but they want to do it that way. God's hardening means that he doesn't restrain them. He lets them go and do as they please. Now, uh, 
an analogy of this would be, uh, you guys have seen little kids, and the stove gets turned on, and the little red light starts up on the stove. And the little red light, it's pretty, and it looks interesting. And the little kid wants to put his hand on it. What's going to happen if he touches it? Yeah, he's going to get burned. You guys know what I'm talking about on the stove, right? The little red circle. The kid wants to touch it, but if he touches it, his hand's going to get burned. So, you know, week goes by every day, multiple times a day. Mom starts uh, the stove up. The kid tries to touch it. She grabs his wrist, moves it down. Don't do that, honey. It'll hurt you. And it goes on and on and on. What might that mom do after this has gone on for a few weeks? Might let him do it once. Because is the kid learning just by, you know, mom moving his hand every time? He's not learning. So she might just give him over to do what he wants to do. And the kid may walk up and look. Oh, mom's not looking. She doesn't see me. And touch it. And is he ever going to do it again? If he's smart. No, I had one kid. I used this example earlier. And I had one kid that goes, oh, man, I did that like six or seven times. And I was like, buddy, I'm sorry. That just wasn't bright, yeah. right? Uh, so, you know, what, what might happen is the mom might not hold him back and give him over to do what he wants to do. In Scripture, we see that this happens at times with people. Pharaoh is the best example. Pharaoh has Israel in slavery in Egypt. Does he want to let them go? No. But God starts sending these plagues, and it says, uh, Pharaoh a couple of times gets to the point where he says, Moses, just get them out of here. Now, does Mo- deep down in Pharaoh's heart, does he really want to let them go? Of course not. He, he's finally getting to the point where he's like, just get them out of here because things have been going poorly. And five times in the text, it says, Pharaoh hardened his heart. Five times in the text, it says, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And a few times it just says Pharaoh's heart was hardened. It doesn't talk about who did it. But the picture there would be, would be something like this. Pharaoh doesn't want to let him go. But he's getting to the point where he's like, I'm just going to do it because life's miserable. And it's almost like he and God kind of have a conversation. And this doesn't literally happen, but just to kind of explain it. And God says, Pharaoh, do you really want to let him go? No. Then don't. He gives Pharaoh over to do what Pharaoh actually wants to do, which is to keep them in slavery, to sin. And in Romans chapter 1, God reveals through the Apostle Paul that this happens often. There are people that exchange the glory of God for something else. They exchange God's kingship to to live life their own way. And God doesn't always restrain that. And these people harden their hearts God gives them over to do as they want to do, to sin as they want to sin. And if you read on, we won't do it right now, but if you read on down through Romans chapter 1, the sins get progressively worse. They harden their hearts initially, and maybe you could say they commit kind of small sins. But then they harden their hearts more, and they commit bigger sins. And at the very end of Romans 1, they get to the point where they're not just committing bigger and bigger sins, but it says in verse 32, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but start to give approval to those who practice them. The end of the hardening is not only that you you do it, but that you start to approve of it. 
and celebrate it. You know, there's a difference between, uh, I know doing something is wrong, but I, and I did it anyways, but now I feel guilty about it. There's a difference between that and, and I know that this thing is wrong, but I'm going to do it anyways, and celebrating it, being open about it, right? Eventually, at the end of this hardening process, people get to the point where they approve of it and they celebrate the sin. The sin. So, one of the consequences of sin is hardening. First uh, Timothy four two also uh, talks about this principle, and the way that First uh, Timothy talks about it is that people wind up with seared consciences, where they get to the point where it's no longer possible or no longer easy for them to tell the difference between right and wrong. Your conscience is, is what kind of you know, helps you know right from wrong. It's possible in this process, whenever you get to this point where you're approving and celebrating that which is evil, it's possible to get to the point where your conscience is seared and it's not working as it should anymore. This is a consequence of sin. We'll pause right here before we go any further. Questions? That's a bad idea. Yeah, I have been roasting it, and then for some reason, I don't know why, but I got the stupid premonition to touch one, got a huge blister on my finger. The next day, one of my good friends and his father were using ropes, like using a lighter to piece the ropes together. I showed him a blister, and he says, Dad, we need to use a really hot starburst to fuse these ropes. Yeah. That's no, that's no fun. Or, do what? 9.2, yeah. I think I said 8 earlier, sorry. Any other questions? Sorry, my that AC is really loud. It's hard for me to hear occasionally, but yeah, 9.2. So, all right. All right, let's talk about two more consequences of sin before we, we wrap up. Romans 1, that we just read, verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Sin leads to wrath, judgment. Um, 1 Thessalonians 1.10 talks about how our sin leads to judgment. It leads to the wrath of God, yet Christ has delivered us from that through his death on the cross and taking our sin far away. The reason that God's wrath is revealed against sin, if we go back to yesterday, is we have to think about how bad sin is we think that sin is just a little small thing, then God's anger against sin isn't going to make much sense to us. But as we said yesterday, we can look at all of the Ten Commandments and all of God's law, and we can see that any violation of those laws violates the command to love God with all of who we are and the command to love our neighbor as ourself. If you think about what all God has done for us, he's worthy of all praise and honor. Did God have to make you? No, he did it by his grace. Did God, after he made you, you know, we have a a philosophy that floats out there called deism, where God creates and then he leaves. and He's absent from creation. Did God have to be personal with us? 
even after he created us. No, this was also by grace. God has then revealed in his law the way to live a, the, Jesus calls it the abundant life. The way that we can live on earth that's going to be best. And we violate that. We don't honor God. We don't love him by keeping our, his commandments. We disrespect him. We dishonor him. Those who are made in his image and are supposed to reflect his glory take his image in vain and, and, and don't show accurately what God is like. On top of that as well, we've seen that sin has adverse effects for those around us. Whenever Adam sins, it hurts all of creation. Whenever we sin, it hurts those around us as well. And so God is a judge. He's presented as a judge in scripture, and he's not a judge that's going to just turn a blind eye on sin or sweep it under the rug. There are violations of justice being committed, and God as judge is concerned with punishing those and making what has the wrongs committed, making it right, satisfying justice. Do you want a judge here in Dayton, Tennessee that, you know, something, some sort of crime is committed and he goes, hmm, that's not a big deal. We're just going to overlook it. You don't want that. You don't want that on a cosmic scale with God either. You don't want a God that can look at the tragedies that we see on the news every single day and go, it's really not a big deal. So sin leads to judgment. It leads to wrath. All have sinned, so who has incurred that judgment and wrath? All. The term that we associate with God's judgment and wrath, the place where that is meted out on people, is, of course, hell. Um, That is a little bit of a troubling word because we use the word hell, we kind of have one English word for it, and Greek has about five. So later in the semester, probably after spring break, we're going to go over all of them and try to think more deeply about hell. Yes? Yes? Um, no, after spring break next semester, whenever we get into the last thing, so it's probably whenever we'll touch on heaven and hell. Yeah. Oh, later this year, probably after spring break, we'll talk about this. So hell is the place where... God's wrath and judgment are meted out. Uh, hell is the place uh, where justice is satisfied. Interesting point on this, by the way. Uh, who talks about hell more than anybody else in the Bible? Yeah, Jesus does. Which testament mentions hell? The New Testament. Which test? Yeah, <laughs> the New Testament. Jesus talks about it more than everyone else in the Bible combined. The New Testament starts giving us this phrase. The Old Testament is much more generic whenever it comes to, to judgment and things like that. I talked about this recently whenever we talked about the phrase he descended into hell in the Apostles' Creed and how in the Old Testament, anybody remember the term that's used for the place of the dead in the Old Testament? Uh, Sheol, which literally just means the grave. Um, And we talked about how in the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, there's a chasm, and Hades, or hell, is on one side, and on the other side is Abraham's bosom. And that according to the Apostles' Creed, Christ descended into this place where Old Testament believers were after their death, and 
uh, on the three days when he's in the grave, he descends here and then takes his people with him up to paradise, uh, which we usually call heaven, into the presence of his father. Um, The Old Testament does not give us a very spelled out conception of heaven and hell. There is in the Old Testament the idea that somehow one day the wicked will be punished, whereas the righteous will be rewarded. But that information is only there in kind of hints and and seed form throughout the Old Testament. Teaching regarding the afterlife is given a lot more detail whenever the Lord Jesus comes on the scene. And he starts using very frequently the words heaven and hell and, and synonyms to them. But hell, for our purposes today, is the place where judgment for sin is meted out. There's one other place where judgment for sin is meted out, and that's at the cross. Every sin will be punished because God is a holy and righteous judge. And the question that the scriptures raise is where will your sin be punished? If you do not believe on the Lord Jesus, the scriptures teach that you will have judgment and wrath fall upon you one day for the the sins that you've committed against God and your neighbor. That happens in hell. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ willingly and obediently went to the cross, and at the cross, the wrath of God fell upon him so that those who believe in him can escape the judgment. In our, yes, yes, in our court system, there is something called double jeopardy. And what that means is that the same crime cannot be punished twice. I mean, imagine that, right? Uh, you, you commit a crime, I don't know, what crime do you commit, Robert? I don't know. You don't know what crime, Asia, what crime? Uh, oh, you car steal a car. Yeah, car Asia, Asia, uh, Asia, Asia steals a car. Yeah, she steals a car, and so she gets arrested, and she's in jail, and she serves her time. And then she gets out of jail, and free at last, she walks down the sidewalk, and the policeman walks up to her, puts some cuffs on her. Well, why are you arresting me? Because you stole that car. But I already did did my time. Yeah, well, too bad. You're doing it again. Is that how court system works? If you've done your time, then the crime that you've committed cannot be punished a second time. That is only fair and that is only just. And what we have in scripture is the idea that if you are a believer, Christ has died for your sins and you will not have to bear the punishment for it again. That sin has been punished once and it will not need to be punished a second time. Otherwise, God would be punishing the same sin twice, which contradicts the principles of justice that we learn not only from our experience, but also from God's law in the scriptures. And so all sin is punished either at the cross or on judgment day. And so we are told in scripture that though we are sinners, salvation has been offered to us and to flee the wrath of God that is to come. And that if we look to the Lord Jesus for salvation, we can escape that judgment and can escape that wrath. So consequences of sin, probably something that uh, we'll be showing up in some detail on Friday. Um, 9.3, which we will... um, won't take us too much time tomorrow. Um, 9.3, we're going to call, you can go ahead and, and get this down in your notes. Um, we're going to call it uh, Jesus, the image of God.
let's review so that we don't have to do this tomorrow. Whenever we talk about human beings being made in the image of God, what does that mean? Yeah, we are made to be God's representatives uh, in the way that we live. We're supposed to show truths, uh, representatives. We're supposed to show uh, the character of God in the way that we live. We're supposed to model him, mimic him. You're supposed to be able to look at uh, human beings and get some, however small, some idea of what God is like. What else is the image of God uh, have what else does it entail? God's kingship. Yeah, God's kingship because uh, images would be made by a king put throughout his territory to remind everyone I'm the one in charge in this area. Then there was a third thing. What was the third thing? Seth was made in the image and likeness of Adam. Hmm? Yeah, uh, sonship. A, a familial relationship. So we're 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 made to be in a family-like relationship with God as His children. Um. Whenever we talk about sin, one of the concepts that we need to try to think through is what does sin do to the image of God, especially as it relates to this point. We're supposed to represent God. When, when Adam sinned, was he doing a good job of imaging God? No. He should have shown the character of God in the way that he lived. Instead, he sinned. He didn't submit to God's kingship. He did not honor the Lord. He did not care for the creation around him in a loving fashion. Whenever Adam sinned, he did not image God as he ought to. Now, in Romans chapter 9, after the flood, or not Romans chapter 9, Genesis chapter 9, after the flood, humanity has sinned and sinned and sinned, but in Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, God still speaks and says, humanity bears my image. So, we have to think about this pretty carefully. Does sin mean that we have lost totally the image of God? No. But sin also means that we don't image God the way that we ought to. The, the term that we usually use for this is that after the fall of humanity into sin, the image of God has been marred, but not lost. What does it mean to mar something? Yeah, corrupt it, um, make it less clear, uh, less pretty, less seeable, right? Uh, to, to corrupt it, to mess it up in some way. After humanity's fall into sin, human beings still have the image of God. But that image is not as clearly seen as it was before. It has been marred. Uh, maybe a good way to think about it is... Um, my car out here, I don't know if any of you guys have seen my little red car. We have these nasty trees in our yard. And I don't really know what the trees grow, but whenever the wind blows, this stuff comes off of the tree and it's black and it's thick and it like kind of sticks to the car. It's, it's almost like a tar stuff. I'm not really sure what it is. 
But if you look at my car out there, it's been through the car wash three or four times recently. And if you look at it, especially this front wind, uh, this yeah, this front windshield and, and the front of the car, uh, it looks a lot blacker than it does red at this point. The, the mirrors are the worst part because you need those to drive, right? The windshield, you've got to kind of make sure you can see through it, but I'll admit it's a little bit blurry some days in the morning. Now, if you have a mirror and it is really, really blurry, is it is it still going to show you something of your reflection? Can you still, a lot of times, like uh, maybe if you shower and you close the door and the steam from the shower gets all over the mirror, can you still like kind of see yourself in it? But can you see yourself clearly? What do you have to do before you start getting ready and fixing all of this, right? You got to wipe it off. Just because it's blurry, it doesn't mean it's not a mirror. It's still a mirror but it's not functioning the way that it ought to. In the same way, humanity still has the image of God, but it's not imaging and reflecting God the way that it ought to. So the image has not been lost, but it has been marred. And the gospel is about how that image can be restored. Yes. Mm -hmm. The gospel is about how that image gets to be restored. Because we have this idea in scripture that one day we will stand before the Lord as those who are holy and blameless and above reproach. Yesterday we read 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, which says that when Jesus appears, we will be as he is. The day is coming for believers whenever we are in glory when we will perfectly image God the way that we were made to. And so tomorrow we're going to talk about two concepts. The first one being how Jesus is the perfect image of God in the scriptures. And secondly, how the gospel helps us and and makes us be conformed into his image and his likeness. And we'll look at relevant text with that. Any questions about sin or the consequences of sin? Any questions about the test coming up? Okay. That's a that's a bad question. All right. Uh, you'll only need this class period. It's um, so you've got ten matching. So I'll give you a vocabulary word, and then you'll have definitions, and so you'll have ten matching. Uh, and then you will have um. 10 true or false questions. And then I'll have uh, 10 vocabulary words that I want you to give me a definition for. And we'll review that tomorrow and Thursday to make sure you guys are prepared for that. Um, But they're vocabulary words that we've gone over quite a bit. So they should be in your notes. We've spent several days on them. And then there will be one essay question where I'm looking for a full paragraph. Um, at, at, At least, yeah. Yeah, I'll tell you what it is, is either tomorrow or Thursday. I mentioned earlier that it will probably be something from this week. I'm playing with that a little bit. Um, we covered a couple of topics a lot earlier in the semester. Uh, and so I'm, I'm toying with maybe doing something about impassibility or something because I think that we covered that so much that you guys should be able to regurgitate that pretty easily. I don't want that to be like a super hard question if you've been paying attention. If you've not been paying attention, the test's going to be brutal. If you've not been taking notes, uh, I don't think you can pass it. 
But for you guys that have been paying attention and taking notes and can review the vocabulary, it really shouldn't be that hard. Um, you know, you should be able to go in and match words to their definitions. Uh, you should be able to, uh, you know, define them pretty easily. Um, let me talk about that for a second since we do have a, a minute. Um, the, the way that definitions work, you guys who have me before already know this, but like whenever I give you a vocabulary word and I'm telling you I want you to write a definition, um, let's say impassibility is there. All right. Whenever I give you the term impassibility and I say, uh, I want you to define this, you can either write full sentences or you can use bullet points. Either one is fine. Either one is fair game. Um, I don't just want loosely related words whenever you do bullet points, though, right? I don't, I don't want, um, you know, if you're going to do bullet points, I want you to show me that you really know what you're talking about. So if I gave you the vocabulary word impassibility, uh, what does impassibility mean? Hmm? Okay, God can't change is immutability. Impassibility follows from that. Yeah, you might write something about uh, you can't change God. Um, Asia made the point a second ago that this is pretty tightly related to immutability. So you could say um, something like that related to immutability. Um, what else does impassibility mean? God can't suffer. Yeah, God does not suffer. All right. Um, this is kind of the type of stuff. Yeah, go ahead. You can't make God have a bad day. Okay, yeah, you could write something like that. You can't manipulate God. You can't coerce God. Um, you know, things like that. You remember the analogy with Saul where he tries to kind of bat his eyelashes and say, oh, but God, won't you change your mind? All right, so, um, you know, whenever you're defining these terms, uh, be as thorough as you can be. You don't have to write a book. Uh, you know, uh, plenty of, you know, you don't, you don't have to write a book, but um, you probably want more than three words as well, right? Show me what you know, and if you, if you don't put it down, I'm going to assume you don't know it. So each of these will be worth five points. Um, this right here would have full credit. That would be a great answer, all right? Um, if you... Um, if you had a term uh, like inerrancy, all right, and you said, I said, what does the doctrine of inerrancy mean? And you said, if all you said was the Bible is true, all right, technically that's a correct answer, but it's not a very thorough or a very full answer, all right? This would probably not get full credit. How would you define inerrancy? Yeah, the Bible never makes errors. The Bible never makes errors. No error in the word. Uh, in the things it, it try, in the things it aims to communicate. All right. Um, this would be a very, very good definition. You see how that's full?
fuller than just saying the Bible's true, right? Uh, Well, saying the Bible's true would work for a whole lot of different words. Saying that the Bible never makes any errors in the things that it communicates, that would be a very full definition of the term inerrancy. Um, If I gave you, here's one that would be fun. If I gave you the term Trinity, now, just pause for a second. Can anyone fully explain the doctrine of the Trinity? So am I expecting you to? Yes, because I'm a mean teacher. No, of course not. All right? Um, If you wrote for the doctrine of Trinity, if this was all you wrote, God is three in one. Is that true? Yes. Is that a very full answer? So you could write that, but you should also write something, maybe maybe you would write something like, um, the Father... Son and Holy Spirit are different, what's the word that we use? They're different persons, but one God. You see how that's a much more full definition, all right? So we're, we're going for these full definitions. Now, you could potentially, on some of these, you could give me one sentence that's a very good sentence and a very good definition, Right, So don't hear me say um, you always have to have four sentences written down. That's not what I'm saying. You could write one very good sentence that gives me what I'm looking for. But what I'm trying to show you is that if you want full credit on these questions, try to be specific and thorough. Don't just write kind of a, a, something really general. Right? Try to give me very specific and thorough uh, definition. Um, hint. I'm pretty sure the three that I just gave you are on the test. Wink, wink. Okay? So, those are three that should be very easy to study and three that you should get right. On the Trinity one, too, uh, you could also draw an arrow and you could put our little Trinity chart on there. That might be a good thing to do uh, if you remember that. Um, So, there's a... Just a little bit of information there about being thorough on those on those uh, test questions. So uh, it is eleven o'clock. Get out of here. Go. Get off my lawn. Heavenly Father, as we wrap up the book of Numbers and the content that we're covering in it, and and we finish uh, this story of Balaam, we pray that you would help us understand its importance and. Um, we pray that we would remember the details of this story so that whenever we get to later portions of scripture, we can look back on it and bring it to our minds and understand uh, later revelation in in light of the earlier. Um, We pray that we would not be like Balaam and love money more than we love godliness. We pray that we would serve one master and that that would be the Lord Jesus Christ, for he says you cannot love God and money. Let us be people who have one allegiance, one loyalty, and that that is, that is to you. And let us be people willing to say we must obey God rather than men. And as we begin the book of Deuteronomy this morning, uh, help us have clarity about the importance of that book and its place in the Christian Bible. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So, uh, as we said just a moment ago, Balaam can't curse the people. And so, he has a backup plan. 
Let's send these pretty, pretty women over to the people of Israel. Cause them to sin by worshiping Baal. They'll break the law of their God. And then their God will send curses on them. And remember, I said yesterday, not all of that is spelled out perfectly clearly in the book of Numbers itself. I'm pulling from a couple of other places in scripture where some more details are given to us. But this is what happens if we listen to the Bible as a whole. So whenever we come to Numbers 25, uh, this is one of the darkest points in Israel's history. Uh, This would be comparable, if not worse, than the Golden Calf event. Golden Calf, pretty bad. This is on par with that, if if not a little bit worse. So uh, let's think about what happens together as we read Numbers 25. In verse 1 of Numbers 25... It mentions that Israel is at a place called Shittim. Later in the book of Numbers, it will be called Abel Shittim. Um, This Abel in English is spelled like Abel, who was the brother of Cain. In, In Hebrew, it's two slightly different words. What Abel Shittim means is land of... Acacia thorns. Um, thorns in the Bible, positive or negative? Negative. When do thorns come into the world? Jesus. No, when, sin. when Adam sins, thorns come into the world. So this is a negative uh, word. It's associated with sin imagery. Acacia. What do you know about acacia? Um, it has those big spikes on it. Or thorns, and then if you get pricked by one of them, you get conquered. Yeah, you could you could almost call this the land of very deadly thorns, or something like that. Does that sound like a place you want to be? No. Um, This is the last place that Israel will encamp before they enter into the promised land. It's the it's the land of curse. It's the land of thorns, the, the land of death. You could, you could call it something like that. And the story that occurs at Shatim is a very negative story. You had a question? Oh, uh, I was going to say that my, my Bible says Acacia Grove. Yeah, yeah, that's, they're translating it, and, and mine is just giving the literal name of it. But yeah, that's, that's correct, Acacia Grove. Um, something about Acacia Thorns. Jeremiah? Um, is it... Is it like the land of like acacia thorns, like the thorns, or just like the trees with the thorns? Yeah, there's a lot of acacia trees around, but acacia trees are going to be most known for their thorns, right? Okay. Um, so let's read in Numbers 25. You guys follow along with me, and I'll pause occasionally, and you fill in the word that should be there. Show me that you're tracking with me. Starting in verse 1, it says, While Israel lived in Shittim, the people began to whore with the daughters of Moab. These invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people ate and bowed down to their gods. The main one among them will be Bel. Verse 3, So Israel yoked himself to Bel of Peor. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel. And the Lord said to Moses, Take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord, that the fierce anger of the Lord may turn away from Israel. 
And Moses said to the judges of Israel, each of you kill those of his men who have yoked themselves to Bel of Peor. Verse 6, And behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman. Midianite and Moabite are, are somewhat synonymous. Um, there is a slight difference between the two, but this Midianite woman is supposed to be considered one of the Moabite women that's come. So one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midianite woman to his family in the sight of Moses and in the sight of the whole congregation of the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting. So to set the scene a little bit, the people of Israel have decided they want to marry some of these uh, Moabite women. And in Israel's nation... If a, if, a, if a person who is not an Israelite wants to intermarry with someone who is an Israelite, all right, usually what would have to happen is that that non-Israelite would have to go through some ceremonial cleansings, would have to go through some rituals, and would have to start associating themselves with the God of Israel. Is that what's happening here? No. No, it's going backwards. The people of Israel are going through and offering sacrifices to Bel, and they're bowing down to Bel, and they're affiliating themselves with Bel, and then they're marrying the Moabite women. So God is obviously very angered about this. Number one, because they're supposed to have no other gods before his face. They should be loyal to the God who brought them out of Egypt. But he's also angered by this because I've told you a few things about Bel worship, and it's not good. This is, this is a pretty cruel religion, and we'll see that more as we go into the book of Joshua. And so uh, the Lord uh, says that death will be the penalty. The, the leaders of the people who have allowed this to happen and have participated in it will be put to death. And Moses also raises up some of the more godly leaders and says, those of you uh, who, who, have, who uh, this has happened on your watch, You need to go take care of it. Judge the people. And whenever we get to the next scene, the people are praying in front of the tent of meeting. They're weeping. The people are repenting. They're looking for mercy. And as the congregation of Israel is bowing down before the tent of meeting and saying, we've sinned, we've done what is wrong, we're repenting, there's one guy. His family is right there in front of the tent of meeting. And there's one guy who grabs a Moabite woman and brings her with him to the tent of meeting. And let's see what happens next. Um, It says in verse 7, when Phinehas, we need to remember that name, by the way, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, so Phinehas is Aaron's what? Grandson. Grandson. Uh, He's now the priest, probably meaning the high priest. So when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand and went after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them, the man of Israel and the woman, through her belly. Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were how many? 24,000. So, um... If we kind of read between the lines here, one of the ways that you worship Bel is is through sexual activity. 
All the people of Israel are here bowing down before the Lord God of Israel. They're repenting of their sins. And this guy brings this Midianite woman right to the tent of meeting. And it seems like he's doing things to worship Bel with her. And then he goes into the temple, or into the tabernacle, I'm sorry, into the chamber, it says, meaning the holy place. Remember, you have the outer court, and then you have these two compartments. One is the holy of holies, and the other is the holy place. He, he has the audacity to run in here with her, and that is where Phineas puts them both to death, kebabs them. Right? You guys seen a kebab before? Yes, sir. Right? Uh, kebabs them. Both of them on the spear together, uh, which is at least implying that they're very close in that moment. So, um, this is obviously a, a terrible, terrible, terrible sin. Right? Uh, this has desecrated the tabernacle. This has, something unclean has happened in the tabernacle. This has been a, an act of idolatry on the people of Israel. This has kind of been shoved in their face as well. Uh, this plague has happened, 24,000 are dying. Uh, the people of Israel have been called upon to judge other members of the nation. So there's been not a civil war necessarily, but there's been a death penalty that's had to be instituted. Um, in verse 10, it says, the Lord said to Moses, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, has turned back my wrath from the people of Israel in that he was jealous with my jealousy among them so that I did not consume the people of Israel in my jealousy. Therefore say, behold, I give to him my covenant of peace and it shall be to him and to his descendants after him the covenant of a perpetual priesthood because he was jealous for his God and made atonement for the people of Israel. The name of the slain man of Israel, who was killed with the Midianite woman, was Zimri, the son of Salu, chief of a father's house belonging to the Simeonites. And the name of the Midianite woman who was killed was Cosby, the daughter of Zer, who was the tribal head of a father's house in Midian. So what that tells you is that um, this, uh, this guy, Zimri, his father was in, what, what does the text tell you about his father? He's a chief of house. Yeah, he's a chief in the tribe of Simeon. Simeon is, um, uh, I believe, the, the second, yeah, he's the second born of Israel, so this is pretty high, high ranking, right? Um, what is true about Cosby's father? He's the chief of the house of Midian. Yeah, he's one of the chiefs of the house of Midian. So what has happened here is, uh, you guys know in like the ancient world, you have a king over here and you have a king over here, and tension between the two nations, what do they sometimes do to make peace? Intermarry. They intermarry and have a marriage alliance. That's what Israel has done with Midian here. That's what Zimri and Cosby are. It's a marriage alliance between the people of Yahweh and the people of Bel. Is that good? No. No. So... Uh, in verse 16, it says, The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Harass the Midianites and strike them down, for they have harassed you with their, wi with their wiles. 
uh, with which they beguiled you in the matter of Peor and in the matter of Cosby, the daughter of the chief of Midian, their sister, who was killed on the day of the plague on account of Peor. So break the alliance that you've had with them. You guys have tried to make this alliance, this ungodly alliance between Midian and Israel, and God says that's no good. They've harassed you by making you go into idolatry and sin. They've harassed you by trying to get my curses to fall down on you. Now you harass them. Go fight. And in that battle, the book of Numbers doesn't tell you about it, but the rest of scripture speaks to it. In that battle, Balaam will go out and fight against the people of Israel and he'll be struck down and killed as well. So we need to get a few principles from this. You got a quick question, Zach? Yeah. So chief of the house, is that kind of mean like a not quite that high ranking, but you're thinking along the right terms. Mine says the daughter of the prince of Midian. Okay, yeah. Um, the way that we think of prince would be you have a king and prince is his son, kind of heir to the throne. Prince is going to be used in a more general way in the Bible if translators decide to go that way. Um, you know, um, I don't know if this is a good example for you guys or not, but, but in England, they still have the monarchy. Right, Queen Elizabeth died recently, and now Charles, her son, is is king of England. Right, so you have in in England you have the king and you have the queen, and then you'll have princes and princesses under them, which are heirs to the throne. They're children, but then there's like extended family, cousins, and stuff like that. Right, and sometimes these people are given honorary titles like dukes or lords or something like that. Um, especially if you're reading in the KJV, the way that translators have decided to do it there, um, which, which does pretty accurately reflect um, you know, how, how this worked in Israel's mind, uh, instead of having these different titles like, okay, the direct children are prince and princesses, and then the cousins are dukes and these other people are lords, all of them are called princes. Prince basically just means a high-ranking official who's not the king, right? So... Um, just to, just to say, like, that, that does not mean that Cosby's dad is next in line to be the king of Midian. It just means that he's a high-ranking official, something like that. Does that help? Yeah. Okay. Jeremiah? Um, so, <clears throat> back in verse uh, 12, what does it mean, uh, like, a covenant of peace? Uh, basically what this means, and it'll be spelled out a little bit more as we, as we go on, but basically what it means is that Aaron was the first high priest. And then he had several sons, one of whom was Eleazar. And then Eleazar had several sons, one of whom was Phineas. And what God is saying here is that the high priestly line is going to go through Aaron, through Eleazar, down through Phineas. So Phineas's kids are going to get this. It's going to be a perpetual covenant with with Phineas. Um, Phineas is going to be the one... What what sacrifice does the high priest get to offer that's very important? Passover? No. The, the one that he doesn't hold. Yeah, the Day of Atonement one, right? Where where sin is covered up, it's atoned for. Um, there's peace made between God and the people. Um, I read it that way. Phineas is going to be, and his descendants are going to be the ones who get to make that peace offering. Um, they're going to be the high priests there. So there's a few... Um, few ideas that we need from this story moving forward. All right. Number one, 
Um, in verse 4, according to verse 4, don't give me a different answer because you could give me correct answers that don't come from verse 4. But according to chapter 25, verse 4, how can Israel make peace with God? Zach? Um, hang the people and son for the Lord. What people? Like, Ethan? The, uh, the chiefs, like hanging the chiefs. In the sun, there we go. Yeah, take the chiefs of the people, meaning the people of Israel, and hang them in the sun. The idea that's being presented here is that those who are in leadership over Israel can represent them. So the people of Israel have sinned, and there can be a substitution that is made. Here is the entire nation of Israel. They've all sinned. But there's a small group inside of Israel, the chiefs or the princes, the people who represent them. And in verse 4, the chiefs or the princes are able to represent the people. And so the Lord says... Hang them in the sun before the Lord, and the wrath of God, the anger of God, will be taken from the people and placed on them. In the Old Testament, there are going to be a few places where the king of Israel is referred to as Israel. He is a representative of the people. And there are going to be times in Israel's history where a king, uh, something bad is about to come on the nation... And the king, rather heroically, will be able to say, let the bad thing come on me. Let it come on me instead. There is an idea presented here that we sometimes call in theology. This is a a vocabulary word that I really do want you guys to have. Um, There is an idea in theology called federal headship. Um, You guys have heard the term federal government before, right? Yeah. Uh, the people in D.C., basically. Um, Federal headship in theology is the idea that what the leader does counts for the people. The best example of this is going to be whenever Israel gets its kings in 1st and 2nd Kings. And it will say, Whenever there's a, well, I, you guys probably already know this. Whenever Israel has a righteous king, how does Israel as a whole act? Better. Yeah, righteously. Whenever they have a wicked king, is there ever a time when Israel has a wicked king and all the people say, no, we want to be holy, get that guy off the throne. Does that ever happen? No. no. All right. Whenever the king is good, things go well for the nation. Whenever the king is bad, things go poorly for the nation. Their, their governor... Their king, it, you know how your head kind of controls the rest of your body, right? Your brain controls what your, what your limbs do, right? Their head, their king, the one that's in position, has the authority to really be able to control how the nation does. Another really good example of this is this. Um, whenever Adam sinned in the garden... Um, We've said a few times before, whenever Adam sinned in the garden, who did that affect? All of us. Everyone. All of his descendants, all of his offspring, all of his children, all right? Whenever Adam sinned, what he did 
represented all of us. So whenever Adam did poorly, it was as if all of us did poorly. What Adam did as our representative, as our federal head, as our leader, counted for us. Do you like that? No. Well, here's the good side of it. Here's the good side of it. The New Testament tells us that we can have a different federal head. We're all born with Adam being our federal head because we're all descended from Adam. And Adam's guilt, his sin, counts for us, and then we add to it because we willingly sin as well. The New Testament says that we can have a different leader. When Adam did poorly, it counted for us. His poor performance was our poor performance. But the New Testament says that God has sent a new leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that whenever we have faith in him, we're no longer under Adam. We're under Christ. Uh, did Christ do right or wrong? Right. Did he do well or poorly? Well. Do you want what Jesus did to count for you? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, in this text, the people can be hung. What do you hang people on? Trees. Trees. The leaders of the people can be hung. They can die in the place of the people, and God's wrath will be taken away. In the gospel, Christ can die on a tree for us, and God's wrath can be taken away from us. Whenever Christ does that, his good performance counts for us. He's our new federal head. That's an Old Testament concept that the gospel uh, picks up on. Shane? Mm-hmm. Another thing that we see in this text is this. Um, some of you may be able to pick up where I'm going with this, but I don't want you to ruin it for the rest of the class because um, this will be a few books in the future. But let me ask this question. Whenever we start reading about Moabite women again, are you going to have a tendency to have a good opinion or bad opinion of them? Bad. Yeah. Just keep that in mind. Some of you already probably see where I'm going with that. But um, keep that in mind. Moabite women, because of this event, have a bad reputation. Um, what would they have a bad reputation for? Um, worshiping Baal. Worshiping Baal and doing what else? And making Israel sin. Yeah, being deceptive, making Israel sin. And they make Israel sin through what? How do they get them to worship, though? Yeah, sexual immorality, uh, lust. So moving forward, Moabite women will have a reputation for being sexually immoral, deceivers, idolaters. Keep that in mind because uh, we're going to meet a Moabite woman before too much longer, before the semester ends. All right. Um, in verse 9, what does God send upon the people? Plague. So he, not only do the leaders have to die for the people, at least some of the leaders have to die for the people, not only does Israel have to bring judgment on other members of Israel, um, so God, God goes after their leaders, judgment falls on the nation uh, through warfare, but also a plague is sent on them. Uh, who does God send plagues on? Um, the, uh, who has he sent plagues on? The Egyptians. So who is he having to treat Israel like in this text? 
the Egyptians. Is that a good thing? No. Um, how about this one? Why was, one more time, we already said this, but why was the sin of Zimri and Cosby uh, so bad? Like, a part of it was there's potential sexual immorality happening in the tabernacle. Part of it is they're worshiping Bell. But what was the other part of it? Well, like, before Phineas killed them, they were probably going to go into the Holy of Holies. Okay, so, so yeah, desecrating the tabernacle, worshiping Bell. What else? They were like this. They were like the seal, the ultimate peace between God's people and um, Baal. Which is like, yeah, Baal's people. Yeah. yeah. Um, what does that tell you about Israel and alliances moving forward? Uh, they're they're going to make some alliances. You know, they're going to make some bad alliances. Well, what should they learn from this, though? They should Don't learn make alliances not with to, other people. Not to make alliances with people that you like. Well, evil people. They were. They made yeah. an alliance because they had. Um, they were lustful for the women. They should make alliances yeah. um, not for them. Yeah, one of the things that happens uh, throughout history whenever two nations make an alliance is they start uh, engaging in a lot of trade. And whenever they engage in a lot of trade, they become very familiar with each other and they start their cultures start to impact each other. Yeah. Does Israel need to be impacted by Moab's culture? Yeah, it should be vice versa, but you've heard the proverb before, bad company does what to good morals? Do you know? Yeah, bad company ruins good morals. A lot of times what happens is, um, okay, Israel is supposed to be holy, Bel, uh, Moab is very unholy, and a lot of times you're going to hope that Israel pulls Moab out of its unholiness. But is that typically what's going to happen? No. What's going to happen instead? Yeah, Moab's going to pull them into unholiness. So um, as we get into Deuteronomy, there's going to be some rules set up about Israel and alliances. And for the most part, the advice given is don't do it, especially whenever you go into Canaan in a few years under Joshua. The Canaanites might try to make alliances with you and they might say, spare us and we'll serve you. Should Israel do it? No, no. So, um, they should have learned some very important lessons from this text. Uh, we'll see how they do with that. Any other questions on Numbers 25? Go ahead. I, I have a question about like the number and the amount of people that Israel is as a whole right now. Because I'm looking in these, like, like over here, and it's like, there's a lot of numbers. Yeah, chapter 26 is a full census, so you could go through and add some stuff up and figure it out. Um, we're not going to do that right now, but you, you can feel free to do that. Um, let's look at chapter 27 really quickly. Um, chapter 27, and then uh, it'll pick back up again in chapter 36, the very last chapter of, of, of Numbers. Chapter 27 has to do with a legal matter. 
Um, there is a fellow by the name of Zelophehad. Zelophehad um, has died. Zelophehad has died, and he has no sons to inherit his stuff. Instead, he has four daughters. And Israel is trying to figure out what to do about this matter of inheritance. Because who usually inherits the stuff? It's the male. Yeah, the firstborn male usually gets most of it, and then it's split up between the other males. So Lafayette has no sons. He only has four daughters. And so there's a question of what to do with this inheritance and what the women should do. Um, and this isn't like really a, a sexist question at all. The, the question is more along these lines. Um, how many tribes are there in Israel? Twelve. Twelve. It's perfectly fine for a person from Simeon and a person from Zebulun to get married. It is. It's perfectly fine for someone from Judah to marry someone from Naphtali. All right? It's fine for the tribes to intermarry, and that's going to happen at times. Um, the issue is the way that, that land stuff is divvied up. They're not in the land of Canaan yet, but there's already been a preparation for whenever we get to Canaan, this is how the land needs to be divvied up. And so whenever a woman marries someone from a different tribe, she goes and lives in that tribe with him and his family. Well, that presents a little bit of an issue if she has inherited land. If she's inherited land and then marries someone from a different tribe, then she now is part of that other tribe, and that portion of the land is now part of the other tribe as well. So over time, let's say that uh, the men of Reuben marry a lot of women from Simeon, and those women from Simeon have inherited land, all of the land of Simeon would start to belong to who? Reuben. And that's a problem. We don't want that to happen. We want the tribes to be able to keep the stuff that God has given to them specifically. So, there's kind of a twofold question that Moses has to answer. Number one, can women ever inherit? He needs to answer that. Is it okay for the daughters of Zelophehad, who have no brothers, to inherit any of this land? The second question he has to answer is, how do we ensure that land stays with one tribe and doesn't move from tribe to tribe? So, how do we protect... How do we protect land rights whenever this happens? You know, uh, if, a, if a woman from Reuben inherits land and wants to marry a fella from Manasseh, how do we make sure that, that all of the territory of Reuben doesn't start to belong to Manasseh? So um, Moses is, is brought this question, and Moses doesn't know what to do. God's law, as long as Leviticus was, never addressed this. And so Moses prays before the tent of meeting. He talks to the Lord, and in, in Moses' wisdom, but also with the guidance of, of God, um, Moses makes uh, these rules. Can a woman ever inherit? He says, yes. 
It's only right that the daughters of Zalatha had inherit this land that their father has left them. Well, how do we protect the land rights? And the way that, that Moses goes about doing that is he says, if they're going to inherit land, they need to marry within their tribe. So before, they kind of had freedom to marry anyone in Israel. Now, if they become inheritors of land, they need to marry within their tribe to make sure that that land doesn't move from one tribe to another. Yeah? Can I use the restroom? You may. Now, I bring this up for a couple of reasons. Number one, I want you to know that this is incredibly rare in the ancient world. The other nations even with a situation like this, would have answered this question, can women inherit, with a very loud no. Israel's religion is much more pro-woman than the nations around them. All right. um, sometimes we're tempted to read certain portions of the Old Testament, and we're tempted to walk away from it with the idea that, that God is kind of anti-woman or something like that. What we need to recognize is that the world Israel lives in and the world that we live in are vastly, vastly different places. Would it really be safe for a woman to be out of the house working in a field five days, six days out of a week in the ancient world? No. The answer is no. No, it would not. All right? That would not be a safe place for them to be. Shepherds have very low moral standards a lot of times, right? It, um, whenever we get to the book of Ruth, we'll see that uh, Boaz is very concerned that Ruth has been working out in the field and says, I want you to work in my field only, and I want you to stay close to these, these workers that I have because I know they're good guys, and they'll take care of you. They'll make sure that you're, you're safe. Also, not only would it be unsafe potentially for a woman to do that because of, of like other people, what else is there a lot of in Israel. Animals? Yeah, what type? Wild animals. Yeah. Well, her Wolves family. and bears and lions and things like this. And so in the ancient world, um, women, you know, don't really get out and, and, and do that a whole, whole lot. It's more, um, that's more of a, of a male role. And so, you know, you have to just kind of put yourself in the shoes uh, that the, the Old Testament was written in. But whenever you do that, you see that in very significant ways, uh, this, is, this, is really, this is really different than what we would see in like uh, Assyria or Babylon or among the Canaanites. Even Romans, whenever you get to the New Testament, you know, uh, centuries later, uh, in the time of Jesus, this is still answered No. But in Israel's religion, it's answered yes. Um, so uh, this is one reason why I want to point this out. The other is, in Levitic, at the end of Leviticus, the end of Numbers, and many, many times in Deuteronomy, Israel uh, has two commands repeated to them, kind of ad nauseum. They're going to come up a lot. All right. One of them is, whenever they come into Canaan, they need to do two things right off the bat. Number one, they need to set up boundaries for the specific tribes, and the boundary markers should never move. All right? So whenever they come into the land, 
Leviticus says this, Numbers says this, Deuteronomy says this. The first thing they need to do after they take the land, set up boundary markers for the specific tribes, never move them. They are set. So, uh, if we ever get to a point in the Old Testament where one tribe used to have this amount of land, but then all of a sudden part of that land starts belonging to another tribe, would that be good or bad? That'd be bad. That'd be bad. It's violating the law. So keep that in mind. Let's see if it ever happens. I'm guessing it does. Yeah. It does. All right? They're supposed to set up boundary markers, never supposed to move. This is why the daughters of Zelotha had need to marry within their own tribe. That is why Moses is very, very adamant about that. The second thing that they need to do, as soon as they come into the land, the second thing that they need to do, um, which really doesn't have anything to do with this stuff, but I'm going to go ahead and give it to you as well, is they need to set up places called cities of refuge. A city of refuge, um, this is going to be a very, very interesting point whenever we get them described to us in the book of Joshua. Uh, we could go ahead and talk about them just a little bit um, whenever we're in Numbers or Deuteronomy, but um, we get a whole lot more detail in the book of Joshua, so we're going to wait until we get there. I'll tell you basically what they are, though. Um, you guys know that there is a difference between murder and... But then if you kill someone on accident, what's it called? Manslaughter. Manslaughter. Good. Murder is intentional, right? I am laying in wait for Natalie McKinney, and I have an axe. And then Natalie comes walking down the road, and then I jump up. And then no more Natalie, right? That is murder. Premeditated. Manslaughter would be Natalie and I are cutting down a tree in her yard, and I take the axe back, and then whenever I swing it, the axe head goes flying off, and then, oh, man. No more Natalie. No more Natalie. That's an accident, manslaughter. So in the ancient world, in the ancient world, in Israel's time, um, sometimes events come up where, where manslaughter happens. All right? Whenever that happens, here, uh, you, you start playing basically tag. All right? You guys know how to play tag? So, so uh, okay, let's say this happens, uh, all right, I'm working, and my, my axe head flies off, and boom, no more, no more Natalie, all right? So, um, all of a sudden, I, I'm sorry, that was really dark, but I'm just going to run with it now. Uh, so, 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 whenever that happens, I've done it on accident, but uh, her family doesn't know that. So, there is someone appointed, a close relative of hers that is appointed, who is called the Avenger of Blood. And that person has the, the legal right to chase me down and put me to death. And what I have to do, what I have to do is I have to go to one, uh, there's 10 of these in Israel. I have to go to a place called City of Refuge. Whenever I get to the City of Refuge, that's basically the safe zone. Hmm. Avenger of blood can't kill me anymore. I go there. The people in that city hear my case. It was an accident. This is what happened. And then they judge and determine whether I am innocent or guilty, whether it was manslaughter or murder. If they judge and say it was just manslaughter, I have to live in that city until the high priest dies. And then whenever the high priest dies, I can go anywhere in Israel I want to. But until that happens, I have to stay there. If it is judged to be a murder, they listen to the case, 
they pull in witnesses and someone goes, oh, no, 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 I saw it happen and that was not an accident. I'm handed over to the avenger of blood and I'm put to death. Now, the reason that the avenger of blood can kind of chase the person to the city of refuge is to make sure that they go to stand trial. Because if you're guilty, do you really want to stand trial? No. No. So you can't just escape it or else the avenger of blood can come after you. All right? And if you kill the avenger of blood, he'll have an avenger of blood who will also come after you. So, I mean, you're going to get God at some point, right? It's, it's, it is a way of ensuring that the person quickly goes to the city of refuge, quickly stands trial, so that innocence or guilt can be determined. Whenever Israel comes into the land, they need to set up these boundaries immediately. They need to set up these cities of refuge immediately. Now, the cities of refuge, like I said, they are very interesting, and we will talk about them in more detail whenever we get to the book of Joshua. Um, we're going to probably hunker down in Joshua for a good deal of time because I, over the summer I had an elective class uh, in, in, my, in my seminary uh, degree that was just on the book of Joshua. It was very, very fun. Uh, so we'll, we'll unpack quite a few things there. But um, the next thing for us to get started with is Deuteronomy. We don't really have a ton of time to jump into that at the moment. So, um, we will pick up with Deuteronomy tomorrow. Your reading tonight, uh, these are all pretty short chapters, so it shouldn't be too bad. I want you to do Deuteronomy chapters 6 through 10. Uh, and then we will start talking about Deuteronomy tomorrow. Remember that you have a memory verse due on Friday, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. And then um, we're going to go over Deuteronomy tomorrow. Tomorrow's Thursday. We're going to cover some stuff in Deuteronomy tomorrow. On Friday, uh, I've mentioned to you guys once before that we are going to have uh, just kind of a a question and answer day. So on Friday, um, what I would encourage you to do, if you want participation for this, all right, um, maybe I'll actually make this a quiz grade. That would be a good way to do it. Make sure you guys do it. Um, I want you guys to come in on Friday um, with at least two questions. I want you to write them down, and at the end of class, I want you to give them to me. All right? And throughout the course of the class, I want some of you to raise some of the questions that you have. Um, It would be great if you asked questions about Genesis through Numbers that we just haven't had a chance to get to. Uh, But you could also raise questions uh, about um, other things as as well. Um, I will will say this. um, If you raise a question about something, and I know in a few weeks we're going to have a lesson on it, I might give you like a couple of things along those lines, but I'll probably say... Let's wait until we get there, all right? So if you're asking a question about the book of Judges, and I know that I have an entire lesson dedicated to it, uh, I may kind of give you a couple hints in the right direction, but then we'll probably just wait till we get to Judges. Um, I'll also say that if you raise a lot of questions about things that the Bible does not actually speak to, uh, then I'm probably going to to say that. We don't want to be people who go beyond what's written. So if you're asking questions about, you know, what exactly happened whenever Satan fell into sin? Well, the Bible doesn't really talk a lot about that, 
There's a couple passages that might be about that, but even those, it's kind of hard to tell. So, um, you know, I'm going to reserve the right to say, "Mm, don't know, Bible doesn't really say, let's not speculate too much, and then move on. Um, Deuteronomy 29.29 says that there are secret things that belong to the Lord, but then there are things that are revealed, and the things that are revealed belong to us. And we have enough in Scripture to keep us occupied uh, that I think it's wise to just stick with what has been revealed and not go past what's what's written. Yes? So I have a question. Last night in our reading, um, we had to read Deuteronomy 1 through 6, right? 1 through 5. Yeah. Anyway. Well, you only um, have to do 7 through 10 now. Anyway, um, I think it, was in, it might have been chapter 1 or chapter 2 where it mentioned an an- Anakin or Anakin. Anakim. Yeah, those things. Are those the same as Nephilim? So the Anakim, the way that it works is you have the Nephilim before the flood. After the flood, you have a guy named Anak, and his descendants are the Anakim. And the book of Numbers also calls them the Nephilim. Uh, And what I argued the other day, whenever we looked at Numbers 14 is that everyone except for Noah and his family died in the flood, and that includes the Nephilim. And I think that the sons of Anak, um, who also call themselves the Nephilim, I think that they're maybe just naming themselves after them. I don't think that this is teaching that the Nephilim survived it, right? Which I think that that just raises some really prickly questions, right, about, um, you know, about the the nature of the flood. I think that this is the only way that I can really make sense of that. The other, the other way to make sense of it, Zach, would be that you have to say some people survived the flood, even though the Bible says only eight people did. And um, that's a hard place to go. So, all right, read, uh, read this tonight, and then we'll pick up.